Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and the AUA's chair of education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to another uh, episode of our AUA educational podcast series. And this podcast is one in a series that looks to highlight some of the recent AUA guidelines or white papers that have come out from our organization and provide for you a high-level summary content on these comprehensive works. Uh, today, we're specifically talking about the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer guidelines, which were initially drafted back in 2016 and amended in 2020. Um, to really talk to us about this guideline, it's, it's really my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, my colleague and good friend, Dr. Steve Borgian. Uh, Dr. Borgian is uh, the Carl Rosen Professor of Urology uh, as well as the Vice Chair of Research at the Department of Urology at Mayo Clinic. Uh, he was also a member of uh, this guidelines panel, and as I mentioned, a longtime friend, so it's always more enjoyable to do a lot of these podcasts, not only with knowledgeable colleagues, but friends in the field. So, Steve, welcome, and again, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Absolutely, Jay. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, maybe let's just, just for our listeners, let's just starting broadly, uh, maybe take us through a little bit of, of the concept of, of risk stratification for, for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. In part, you know, why do we do it? What are some of the, the, the big broad risk groups and, and how does that impact how you think about caring for these patients? Sure. So I would say that the, the AUA guidelines for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer were really built off of the concept of risk stratification. Risk stratification in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, as in you know, various urologic malignancies, offers the benefits of um, allowing for patient counseling. So at a very minimum, you know, being able to provide patients with estimates, what's the risk my disease is gonna have recurrence or progress? Um, risk stratification, very importantly in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, we believed would allow us to identify and avoid under-treatment of high-risk patients um, and then in, in the era that we live in of cost consciousness and resource allocation, risk stratification also allows us to be stewards of, res of, of surveillance um, and appropriately tailor individualized surveillance based on a patient's subsequent disease risk of experiencing disease progression or recurrence. So, so maybe um, just for our listeners, what, what are some of the factors that play into risk stratification? You know, what, yep. what are some of the variables? And I, I know they're all going to be a little bit nuanced, but but broadly speaking, what are the variables? And and maybe give us the, give me a sense of the extremes. Like what's sure. a low risk person? What's a high risk person? Sure. And that's actually, the, I think, the best way to think about it. I mean, memorizing the risk groups, I don't feel like is important. They're readily available on the AUA's website and the, the, the guidelines can be downloaded. But the way the guidelines were developed were um, as low, intermediate, and high risk. And that was the, those were classifications based on essentially pathologic criteria primarily. Um, so low risk patients are those patients with a small, which we defined as less than three centimeters, low grade non-invasive or TA um, urothelial carcinoma of the bladder, as well as those patients who have that pathologic entity known as a pun lump or capillary urothelial neoplasm of low malignant potential. So those were the, the, the what would be the low-risk patients, a single, low-grade, small tumor or pun lump. And then just to your point, thinking about it on the opposite end of the risk spectrum, high-risk patients, 
um, are those who have carcinoma in situ, which is a high-grade disease, those patients who have high-grade T1, those patients who have greater than three centimeter high-grade TA tumors, and then patients, I think very importantly, again, to that point of avoiding under-treatment of, of high-risk patients, patients who have had BCG before and have had disease recurrence are considered high risk. Patients who have lymphovascular invasion are high risk. Patients who have variant histology. So sometimes we'll see a pathologic report, urothelial carcinoma with squamous differentiation or glandular differentiation. These are high risk. Um, and patients who have high grade disease in the prostatic urethra, another sometimes overlooked phenomenon that was classified in this risk group and guidelines as high risk. So those are the two kind of ends. And then to your point, everybody in the middle is intermediate risk. So patients who have a small, less than three centimeter high grade TA in their first occurrence, patients who have recurrent low grade TA tumors, or patients who have, for example, multifocal low grade TA tumors would all be in the intermediate risk group classification. So, so if you take that in hand, it seems like you, you talk a little bit about the ability for the risk classifications to guide therapy. And, and it seems to me that the, the area that's maybe a little bit more nuanced that, that is, it's really these patients with intermediate or high risk disease, right? I mean, it seems like low risk disease, fairly straightforward. It's a resection and perhaps surveillance, but, but that doesn't seem like it would be necessarily a very durable strategy as a monotherapy, right? Surgery alone for intermediate and high risk is likely to fail. Yeah, so, so, so that's exactly right. And that's exactly how the, the, the concept of risk-tailored uh, treatment recommendations was put forth in the guidelines. So um, low-risk patients, we made a statement in the guidelines, should not receive um, adjuvant induction intravesical therapy. They can get a perioperative single dose. Intermediate-risk patients um, should be treated with intravesical therapy, and it can be either intravesical chemotherapy or intravesical BCG therapy. Where, and, and, and high-risk patients, the recommendation is in favor of intravesical BCG immunotherapy. Um, so again, a little bit nuanced where there's a window in intermediate-risk patients for intravesical chemotherapy and intravesical BCG. High-risk patients, intravesical BCG is what's recommended. Now, I'll go one step further just to step away from the guidelines for a second to also acknowledge that we practice in an era of chronic BCG shortages. So I think we have to consider the letter of the law and then the, the, the what kind of real world we have. And Although, as I mentioned, the guidelines do state that for intermediate risk patients, both intravesical chemotherapy and BCG are options, I would say in an era of, of BCG shortages, and the AUA has, has partnered with other organizations to put out a policy guideline statement on this, which is to say that intermediate risk patients in that kind of BCG shortage should be treated preferentially with intravesical chemotherapy, and high-risk patients, particularly those with high-grade T1 and carcinoma in situ, should be prioritized for induction full-strength intravesical BCG. So, so maybe tell us a little bit, uh, and, and certainly maybe for our, our, uh, our residents or, or, or students, when you're speaking about um, full induction courses, uh, you're talking about a six-week induction course of either intravesical uh, chemotherapy or, or, as you mentioned, BCG. Tell me a little bit about how do you think about the concept of maintenance? Yeah. Um, do, you know, when do you use it? Uh, what regimen or algorithm do you most commonly use in practice for, for maintenance in these patients? Yeah. So, so here again, um, 
you know, we, we, we're, we'll, we'll talk as if we're in, a, in, a, in, a, in an era where there is not a BCG shortage, because if there is a BCG shortage, um, that would be the first thing to go, essentially, in, in my mind, which would be not to use maintenance. But if there is supply of BCG, then the recommendation is both for intermediate and high risk patients that they do receive maintenance therapy. Um, now, the, the UR, the, there is a, a trial that's been published. Uh, the lead author in the trial is Auden's in European Urology, which sort of helped us to define what the recommendations are in terms of duration of maintenance. So for intermediate risk patients who are treated with BCG and have a complete response, the recommendation is that they then receive one year of maintenance intravesical BCG therapy. For patients with high-risk disease who are treated with induction, which to your point is defined as once a week for six weeks intravesical therapy, the recommendation is that they receive three years of maintenance. Now, the maintenance regimen or schedule um, is the one that was defined, you know, two decades ago, essentially, by Don Lamb and the SWAG protocols, which is to use once a week for three weeks at um, three months, six months, and then every six months for 36 months. So that's the sort of three-year uh, maintenance schedule that we would use. Um, I would say in terms of the science of intravesical chemotherapy maintenance, it's been less well-defined. Um, and in fact, the guidelines doesn't go so, go so far as to prescribe a specific regimen. Many of us do use a year of it kind of extrapolating from the BCG data when we use intravesical maintenance um, chemotherapy. So, so maybe a practical question, which is, um, let's take a patient with high-risk bladder cancer, non-muscle invasive. They're falling into this high-risk cohort. So they, as you just described, they should theoretically receive an induction course, if we take the shortage aside, induction course of BCG up to three years of maintenance. Practically, or do you have any data that you could share on um, how compliant are patients? I mean, that, that's a long time to be receiving BCG therapy. Do you have any sort of broad strokes in your practice of how hard is that to get somebody to follow a three-year maintenance course? Yeah, it's not easy. And in fact, the original trial that published this found that only 16% of patients completed that outlined regimen because of a variety of different factors, local toxicity, compliance, and whatnot. And again, acknowledging the practice environment that we are in now um, with chronic pandemic era, um, that kind of intensity of treatment schedule is not straightforward. It's not. It's a lot of touch points. It's a lot of healthcare visits and a lot of contact. So, um, you know, again, we have to make our recommendations based on what we have in terms of science. We have to live in the real world practical of, about how any one patient will be able to tolerate it. A lot of how I would practice in terms of maintenance does depend just to your point about tolerability. If a patient had a hard time getting through induction, it's going to be really difficult um, in many cases to get them through a prolonged course of maintenance like that. And I think we just have to accept that and deal with it on an individual basis. So so we've talked um, a number of different times now. We've touched on this sort of issue of uh, BCG shortage and, and some of the challenging situations presented by that. You know, one, one area I want to ask you about before we sort of transition topics is um, this concept of, of maybe dose reduction and um, half strength, third strength, uh, do you use that at all in your practice? And and do you have any thoughts on, or is there anything sort of written about maybe efficacy of, of decreasing your dosing for, for these purposes? Yeah. So we don't typically do it, do much of the decreasing of the dosing. Um, it's certainly been a, a, a strategy that has been employed. Um, you know, at this time, the guidelines did not prescribe a particular strain or strength of BCG. 
Um, you know, when we can, we do try to do a, a full dosing, you know, to the point of trying to be creative about scheduling and things. There was a recent trial uh, published in European Urology with a Nimbus trial, which looked at an alternative dosing schedule and didn't find it, 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 it measured up. And so I, you know, when we, whenever we can, we try to use full strength induction for six weeks um, because it's what we have the, the best data to support. Um, but I will recognize that, 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 that dose reduction has been utilized. It's just not something we do a lot of. Sure. Sure. So, so maybe what, what I'd like to do is maybe transition to some of the more challenging scenarios that many people face in practice. The first is, um, when we look at non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, I feel like one of the, the highest stakes disease entities is high-grade T1 disease. And, and it, it's broadly grouped into non-muscle invasive, obviously, but, but uh, th these are the ones that perhaps in practice we worry about the most. We worry the most about adequate staging, uh, progression. So maybe take me through a little bit when you have a patient that comes into your office you resect them and they have high grade T1 disease. What, what is your approach of how to make sure that you have staged them appropriately and, and, and those sort of significant elements? So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, these are the patients um, at the highest risk of experiencing disease progression, um, of, of experiencing metastasis and death from bladder cancer. So um, it can be deceptive that we, we put all of these patients under the term non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And in fact, you know, at, uh, we often emphasize to our fellows and residents that we try to be precise as you have been in the language of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer because a T1 tumor is not superficial. It's not superficial bladder cancer and it's not non-invasive. Um, so, so yes, it is non-muscle invasive. So to the question of, you know, how do high grade T1 patients get evaluated here? I, I, and again, consistent with the guidelines, the guidelines are very, um, I think, clear about this. Patients with high grade T1 bladder cancer should undergo a repeat transurethral resection. Um, there are multiple uh, benefits and multiple data that support it. Um, overall, when we look at patients with high-grade T1 bladder cancer, about 30% of them will be found to have muscle invasive disease at the time of repeat resection. That can be as high as 40 plus percent if there was no muscle present in the first specimen. But even when muscle is present on that first resection and negative, it's about it can be up to 20%. So um, again, we do a repeat resection, whether we did the first resection or not, whether the first resection was visually complete or not, all of these different justifications that have been used not to do a repeat resection. And I think if I could leave you and the listeners with one point of emphasis about management of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, it would be the critical importance of re-resection in high-grade T1. Why do it? Well, in some, it, it's diagnostic, as I mentioned, if there's staging potential to identify muscle invasive disease, why might that alter management? Because then a patient could become eligible for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, repeat TUR um, is therapeutic. Um, you know, it, it, it eradicates what is microscopic residual disease that has been noted in up to 80% of patients at the time of repeat TUR. And for those patients getting BCG after that, it may improve their response to intravesical therapy. And I will also say that repeat transurethral resection is itself prognostic because it's been found that a patients who have high-grade T1 at that re-TUR have an incredibly high risk of subsequent disease progression. Some series have so cited up to 80%. Mm -hmm. And those are patients in whom we would counsel for early cystectomy. So I would say repeat TUR is diagnostic, therapeutic, and prognostic. 
So, so yeah, I, I think that's a great point for our listeners, which is just the absolute importance, as you highlighted, for the repeat TUR in this patient population. So in what scenarios for a patient, let's say you do a repeat resection for high-grade T1 disease, and let's say you um, confirm there's still T1 or there's residual T1 disease, or um, let's say you identify maybe adverse features, uh, micropapillary or, or some variant histology. How does that specifically impact your choice of intravesical therapy versus you know, radical cystectomy or, or, or sort of escalation of treatment intensity? Sure. So, so that gets at the potential prognostic value of that RETUR. So um, you know, part of the point of identifying high-risk features in the guideline risk classification system was to help guide um, clinicians on who to recommend um, cystectomy for. Um, and again, why do we think about cystectomy in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Um, because these are the patients who are at highest risk for disease progression. There is conflicting data, I will acknowledge, but some data that would support that patients who experience disease progression to muscle invasive disease may actually have adverse outcomes compared to patients who present de novo with muscle invasive disease. I acknowledge it's it's conflicting data, but anyway, you know, there is a risk of disease progression. So to your question about, you know, who do we offer and, and, and recommend what we might call early cystectomy for in the setting of non-muscle invasive disease, it would be the patient with residual high-grade T1 at the RETUR. It would be the patient with variant histology. Um, those are patients who have been found to have a significantly higher rate of extravesical disease, even at cystectomy when there's variant histology on the TUR. Patients with lymphovascular invasion, another adverse prognostic feature um, in the high-risk category. Um, and patients with prostatic urethral high-grade disease are also a high-risk category that we would counsel towards earlier cystectomy. So it's it's sort of that constellation of features at the RETUR, to your point, that would lead us to counsel towards, towards cystectomy in the setting of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So I, I want to sort of, we, we've sort of talked about this issue of, of BCG, the availability of BCG, but, but I think the other big challenge that we have, assuming there's no BCG shortage, is those patients that are unresponsive. So they have non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and are BCG unresponsive. So maybe before we even talk about what treatment options, Take us through a little bit of, you know, maybe the word salad. You know, there's BCG unresponsive, BCG refractory. Can, can you sort of distill down, you know, what are the big groups b that people need to know about in the terminology? Because I do feel like a lot of times that's an area of, of confusion. So I would say in 2021, and, and, and any of our fellows will, will laugh as they're hearing this, um, just know BCG unresponsive because you're exactly right there historically have been a whole variety of different terms that have been used that have created all sorts of confusion. They've been defined differently. It's made it hard to um, compare results across clinical trials. It's been hard to, uh, uni to, to establish a, a homogeneous population of patients to enroll to clinical trials, to understand whether treatments had efficacy, uh, BCG um, refractory, resistant, intolerant. But I, you know, we're all kind of saying the same thing, which is what is the population of patients who shouldn't be treated with more BCG because it's not going to work? And so several years ago, with that concept in mind, a consensus panel was, de was, was designed and came up with the term BCG unresponsive. And again, 
just like knowing re-resect for high-grade T1 disease, another really important point I would say is understand the definition of BCG unresponsive disease because it will then allow you to counsel and then manage patients appropriately. So how do you define BCG unresponsive disease? It is the persistence or recurrence of high-grade TA or T1 disease within six months of completing adequate BCG, which I'll define in a second, or the persistence or recurrence of carcinoma in situ within 12 months. So a little longer window because there's an acknowledgement that maybe carcinoma in situ takes a little longer for a, a complete response to occur to. Adequate BCG is either two prior induction courses or one induction course and one of those maintenance cycles that we talked about before. Now, the single exception to that is the patient who gets a single induction course of intravesical BCG and then has high-grade T1 disease at their first post-BCG surveillance evaluation. Those patients are at such a high risk for subsequent disease progression, they are also considered BCG unresponsive. And to the question you asked me before, those are also patients in whom we strongly counsel towards cystectomy. So that is really the 2021. I think understanding BCG unresponsive disease, that, 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 those are the criteria that define it now. Yeah, I think the way you summarize it is great because I, I think it really distills all of these different subgroups into the same underlying, you know, umbrella, which is whom do you need to pivot with, right? Whom really needs a different treatment approach? And I think some of the the combinations, when you start categorizing and subcategorizing, you get lost on the final message, which is okay, you need to pivot from this therapy to others. So let's talk about what what are so let's say you have a patient who has BCG unresponsive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. What are some of the the options? Uh, and obviously, we'll get to. I, I know you've done some work in this space and, and have a, some great work in a trial. But what are what are some of the options for these patients? Yeah. So I, I again, I, I would say if I could leave the third teaching point here, the gold standard option in 2021 is radical cystectomy. Um, that that is the definitive cancer therapy for BCG unresponsive disease currently. Now, I think again we have to also understand that many patients are unwilling or unable to undergo cystectomy. These are often elderly or comorbid patients. So, what else do we have available? What else do the guidelines tell us are options here? Um, so, for patients with BCG unresponsive disease who are unable or unwilling to undergo cystectomy, intravesical chemotherapy um, is an option. I would say at this time, there is not robust enough evidence from prospective trials to definitively recommend a specific intravesical chemotherapy or specific regimen. There was some intriguing data that's been published from a multicenter retrospective group in the Journal of Urology last year on using intravesical gemcitabine and docetaxel as a combination therapy. Um, again, not a prospective trial, but, but a nicely done study um, with some very, very promising results. And I will say for intravesical chemotherapy, when we use it at Mayo in this setting, that's become our sort of go-to regimen um, at this time. Lots more work to be done, but I would say that's one option, which is intravesical chemotherapy in the patient unwilling or unable to undergo cystectomy. Now, Okay, let me just ask you, what, what, what is the, broadly, is that the same sort of dosing regimen that we think about for BCG? Is that six weeks, like similar induction course with maintenance, or, yeah. or has that well, not been defined as of yet? Part of the problem is it was because it was done at a multi-center, um, you know, experience, management was, was, was not unified. Some used maintenance, some didn't. Um, yes, the regimen is once a week for six weeks. After that, um, it's to be defined, and we don't know. Um, but, but that was one of the issues in that study as a retrospective study that combined multiple centers. Um, you know, there, were, there was a couple of different things like that 
maintenance, which were not standardized. Okay. Um, then I would say, you know, another option that is both listed on the AUA guidelines and FDA approved now for patients with BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ is pembrolizumab. So pembrolizumab is a checkpoint inhibitor medication. It's given intravenously. Um, the data to support its use and that led to its FDA approval was from the Keynote 57 trial, um, which had a little under 100 patients um, and basically demonstrated a complete response rate of 41 percent. Um for BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ. Um, now, that's been listed as an option. It's in the guidelines. It's FDA approved. Um, lots of chatter about this uh, amongst urologists, medical oncologists, um, concern about immune-related toxicity and adverse events, um, concern about the burden of treatment schedule. In that trial, it was once every three weeks for two years. There's now a, a once every six-week um, regimen that's come out for, for pembrolizumab, so that may lighten it a bit. Um, and then again, at a health system level, um, you know, there's the issue of cost. This is a very costly medication. Um, and our, our group has, in fact, done some cost effectiveness work on pembrolizumab in this, in this disease space. But again, for our audience, yes, pembrolizumab is a management strategy that's listed uh, according to guidelines. So radical cystectomy, intravesical chemotherapy for BCG unresponsive pembrolizumab. And then, you know, also very importantly, as you kind of hinted at, to not be overlooked and which the guidelines do support clinical trial enrollment. Um, this is really kind of exciting because it is one of the areas in urologic oncology where there is the most active number of clinical trials um, kind of attacking this from a whole variety of different therapeutic strategies, which really makes it, a, a, you know, a, a really uh, an exciting field to watch unfold. So, so uh, and I think you made this point, and, and one of the things is um, to really just point out that pembrolizumab is, is an intravenous systemic therapy, right? So, so one of the notable differences perhaps from uh, BCG, intravesical chemotherapies, uh, is that we're looking at systemic versus uh, maybe local treatments in the bladder. Is that, is that an important distinguishing factor? I think it's a very important distinguishing factor. I think, you know, it's an important distinguishing factor for multiple reasons, um, not the least of which is logistics of delivery, um, you know, and as I mentioned, the potential for systemic toxicities and side effects, the immune-related toxicities of an immune modulatory agent are not to be, you know, taken lightly in an elderly and often comorbid population who is likely getting this because they are not candidates for radical cystectomy. Um, so that, you know, is one of the many considerations, you know, when thinking about what strategies to use in these patients. So, so two quick questions in this space. Uh, the, the first is, uh, any thoughts or comments on the incorporation of BCG with uh, like interferon or other agents? So, yeah. you know, if you have a BCG unresponsive patient, should you give them BCG with other agents sort of along with that? Um, uh, your thoughts on that sort of specific question and scenario? Right now, no. I would say that that's the answer. Um, BCG and interferon had a little bit of traction a few years ago and was being used. Um, but really, as the data has matured on that, there is not enough robust evidence that adding interferon to BCG is better than BCG by itself. And I would say it shouldn't be used um, for patients with BCG unresponsive disease. Now, BCG is being tested with other agents, um, and, and including pembrolizumab, um, in a variety of different non-muscle invasive bladder cancer states. And it may be in the future that BCG plus um, is going to be an option. But I would say at this time, um, for the BCG unresponsive patient, I wouldn't use BCG and interferon. Okay. 
So I, I want to finish here just talking a little bit about um, surveillance and follow-up. And, and, you know, we spoke a little bit before that obviously you can go and read the, the very specific guidelines uh, in the white paper on, you know, the, the different algorithms for low, intermediate, and high risk. But, but maybe um, some broad questions for you is when you have patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, um, frequency of cystoscopy and, and at what interval do you incorporate uh, upper tract imaging and the use of biomarkers? Maybe those three areas broadly, your thoughts on them. Absolutely. So, and that, that's really where the, where the benefit of risk stratification, I think, helps us um, both at an individual patient level to decrease the burden of treatment and at a health system level to be stewards of resources. So um, for low risk patients, to your point, no markers, no upper tract imaging. We do a cysto at three months, negative, nine months, negative annually. For patients with intermediate and high risk disease, um, we do introduce cytology. We do introduce upper tract imaging. Um, so cytology is typically done coupled with cystoscopy, upper tract imaging. It says in our guidelines, every one to two years. And I think that's reasonable. Um, we tend to do every two years here, but it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be that prescriptive. As far as interval goes, um, again, lots of flexibility offered by the guidelines for intermediate and high risk patients, but it is more frequent than the low risk patients. So again, it's at three months for all of them. And then for the intermediate risk patients, it's sort of three to six month intervals for two years, six to 12 month intervals annually. For high risk, it's three to four month intervals, six month intervals and whatnot. So the idea is that we intensify surveillance based on the patient's risk of disease. Um, and that really is what the, again, I believe benefit of risk ratification um, to guide surveillance is. So, so you know, I, I, as I look through our, our conversation over the past 30 minutes, it seems like the, sort of the, the few of the key uh, points that people should go home with here is uh, the importance of, of risk stratification to, to guide not only treatment, but, but surveillance and counseling, the importance of re-resection for high-grade T1 disease, understanding BCG unresponsive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, what that means and the options. Is there anything else you think that that I didn't cover of sort of the big take home items? No, I mean, I, I like I said, it, it all really does stem from the risk stratification system. It really does. I think, you know, taking a risk stratified approach and not thinking about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer as one entity is absolutely critical to optimizing right treatment for right patient in this disease. Great. Well, I really want to, first of all, uh, thank Steve, uh, Dr. Borgian, for, for a really um, great conversation, uh, very enlightening. I think for any of you that are interested in the audience, um, he and I have alluded to the AUA guidelines, and, and there's very detailed and evidence-based information on there if any of you want to take a deep dive in any of the information that was covered today. And for more information on this, please visit uh, auanet.org slash university. Uh, Steve, again, uh, thanks so much. It's, it's always a pleasure to, to see you, hopefully sooner in person than, uh, <laughs> than, on, than on Zoom or on a podcast, but, but always a pleasure. Thanks again for having me, Jay. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>